This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. But you're no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Did we have quite a weekend, uh, Chris? As many of you know, we had our Heirs of Action event. I saw some of you there. I appreciate the ones that came out. We had a solid crowd out there. Many elders, um, you know, it's not too often that you get that many bishops and elders from different denominations in the same room. We were able to do that. We had excellent talks from folks like, you know, Lecrae, John Richards, Lisa Fields, Trené McGee. Uh, We are even blessed by Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, uh, Bishop Claude Alexander, Bishop Timothy Clark and others. Uh, Cam Breeding, who can sing her tail off, um, did an excellent job. It, it was just it was just an excellent event. Shout out to those who supported us. Um, and I, I'm just I'm just proud of our team who did a really good job with the um, execution. Shout out again to uh, Dr. Cynthia Hale uh, and Ray of Hope Church because they were wonderful and did an excellent job, too, man. But just want to hear some of your thoughts as we get into this. Yeah, no, this was uh this is, I think, everything that uh, that I thought it was going to be plus some. Uh, it was it was just a, a great week, like you said. Turnout, the speakers were great. Um, Justin didn't mention that that he gave one of the greatest sermons uh, on the issue of justice and, and Christian civic engagement that I've ever heard. And as you can imagine, I consume a lot of sermons uh, on the topic of Christian civic engagement. It was just a tremendous, tremendous time, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing the fruit that comes out of it. Yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. We we definitely got some good feedback on that keynote. It's been a blessing. It was a lot going into it, but we have so much work to get done. And as Chris pointed out last time, it ain't about me. It ain't about him. It's really about the church as a whole and you all getting involved as well. Well, I'll remind you, one of the ways to get involved with us is to check out our docu-series, which is on our website the How I Got Over docuseries about uh, the role that the authority of Scripture played in the black church, uh, in our education, in the uh, founding, the establishment of the black church, in our art, and so on. It is worth listening to. If you think that orthodoxy is a white Western construct, somebody lied to you, and you need to see that documentary. Um, Also, Be ready and be on the lookout for IVI, the Invisible Institution newsletter. We'll be 
going out very soon. So if you are not on our list, you need to go on our website. You need to register to get on that list. You'll get a lot of political commentary in addition to what you get uh, from the Church Politics Podcast. So make sure that you check that out. A lot to talk about, Chris. A lot going on in your city and in other places. So as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also to all those uh, uh, patrons, if you want to be a patron of the and campaign and also get uh, some extra premium episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics if you want to uh, get a little more information and also, more importantly, be a supporter of what we're doing. You know what it is. We do this all the time. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat to think like a Christian. Go ahead and bust your move, Chris. This weekend, while I was in Atlanta for the uh, the Heirs of Action and the launch of our 2023 uh, Christian Civic Leadership Academy, uh, which is also very exciting. Um, but while I was in Atlanta, uh, city of Chicago uh, experienced a, a major surge in chaos. Uh, we had great weather in Chicago. In fact, uh, I was I was jealous because it was warmer in Chicago than it was uh, in Atlanta, where I was. And with that first warm weekend came a, a uh, you know, something that's become sort of usual uh, and, and common, unfortunately, in our city. Uh, we had a surge of chaos. Hundreds of teenagers flooded our downtown area uh, on Saturday night. Uh, that that unruly crowd engaged in uh, completely destructive behavior, smashing car windows, attempting to enter the Millennium Park and other uh, sort of places where uh, they weren't supposed to be. Ultimately, uh, there was a big police re- response uh, and the situation escalated. Shots were fired. Uh, two teenagers, 14 and 16 uh, years old, were shot. Uh, another man was injured uh, when his car was attacked uh, and his window, his windshield was smashed in by uh, young people jumping on top of his car. Um, we had police having to escort tourists uh, to, to their cars and, and, and parking lots in the city. Uh, and this, this wasn't the first uh, instance of disorderly conduct. Actually, Friday night, uh, there was another uh, large group of teenagers at 31st Street Beach. They took over some buses, and uh, the the police had to be called. A 14-year-old was shot uh, there. Mayor-elect uh, Brandon Johnson here in the city of Chicago said nothing after Friday's uh, events, which was the, the first really warm weekend night of the year. But following that second consecutive night of unrest, he released uh, just in this statement. Uh, he says, in, in no way do I condone the destructive activity we saw in the Loop and Lakefront this weekend. It is unacceptable and has no place in our city. However, it is not constructive to demonize youth who have otherwise been starved of opportunities in their own communities. Our city must work together to create spaces for youth to gather safely and responsibly under adult guidance and supervision to ensure that every part of our city remains welcome for both residents and visitors. This is one aspect of my comprehensive approach to improve public safety and make Chicago livable for everyone. And I, I read just in the whole statement because I want people to be able to come to their own conclusion. I, I think that that the statement uh, begins with what feels like a rather perfunctory, almost obligatory uh, sort of preamble before uh, getting into what was really the aim of the communication, which was, I think, to admonish 
anyone who is calling for these particular youth uh, and perhaps even their parents to face some accountability. And and I'll, I'll haste to say uh, that the reaction to this statement in this city has been about as divided as the 5248 election uh, that saw Johnson elected to become the next mayor. Um, and so, you know, I, I say that to say that there's certainly a constituency uh, for this approach uh, in our city. Um, my fear, uh, Justin, is that the approach is more deeply rooted in narrative than it is in reality. Um, so so I'm, I'm a huge believer uh, in this idea that we have to focus on root causes of violence um, and that we cannot completely police our way uh, out of our youth violence problem. But here's where I think I begin to diverge uh, from from my friend and the next mayor of Chicago and a lot of people, again, like this is not like a Brandon Johnson thing. There is a constituency for this uh, approach, but I grew up in the city. Uh, I grew up actually in the same neighborhood uh, as Brandon Johnson. And I do not recall uh, this kind of activity being a regular occurrence when we were coming up. And it would seem to me that this, this constituency uh, would have us believe that the problem is that there is more oppression more poverty and fewer programs in neighborhoods like Austin, where I grew up, then uh, that there's less of that today than there was in like 1997. And I'd be hard pressed to believe that that's true. Uh, so I, I did this for us, Justin. I made a list of programs on the west side and the south side that I know of in Chicago. I did this off the top of my head, just programs that I personally know about. Uh, so Chicago Youth Services uh, Core. They employ, I think, 5,000 young people, 16 to 24, uh, in year-round jobs uh, every year. Youth, uh, Chicago youth programs, they mobilize hundreds of volunteers uh, in Southside and Westside. Dovetail Project, Westside Cultural Foundation, Chicago Urban League, Urban Initiatives, Future Ties, Blackstone Bikes, Girls for Science, Safe Haven, Becoming a Man, I Am a Gentleman Foundation, Build Chicago, Casa Central, Kids Off the Block, Little Black Pearl, Metro Family Services, Make for Challenge, City Life Center, Metro Squash, XS Tennis Education Foundation. And that's just what I could personally think of. And to my knowledge, none of these programs, Justin, has a chronically burgeoning wait list. Um, It it can't just be that we don't have enough programs. Um, I think that there's something else going, which I which I'll talk about uh, in a minute. But I, I, I want to uh, turn it over to you. But the other thing I want to say before I do is is just that the other part of this narrative narrative is that it's very unfair to hold up this group of kids as a representation of this entire generation, right? It's not an accurate picture. Uh, according to uh, one study from the National Institute of Justice, uh, 1% of young people are responsible for more than half of all youth-related violent crimes. We have right now in Chicago about 300,000 youth living in this city. If a 1,000 of them were downtown on Saturday night wreaking havoc, 299,000 were not. And if, if we do deal swiftly and even a bit harshly with young people who make the affirmative decision to behave this way. Um, I don't think that that is the equivalent of, you know, somehow throwing away an entire generation because this is not the entire generation. You know, 
we talked a little bit before we uh, even started rolling. I, I can go on about this. I'm I'm very passionate about it, but I want to uh, toss it over to you, Justin, and get, get your thoughts. Well, I'm glad you expressed your heart on it um, because I know your heart for young people, especially young people in Chicago. Uh, those of that have listened to this podcast for any, you know, any decent amount of time know that we are for a comprehensive approach when it comes to law enforcement, um, that we want these kids to thrive. And I think one of the things that happens when you don't address lawless like lawlessness like this in the right way, you end up hurting the kids that were there and the kids that weren't there. So I don't think you're helping anybody by taking these positions. And when you talk about some of the responses, one of those responses being from the mayor elect, I think it shows why we urge Christians not to be overly ideological. Because I think that response in kind of not wanting the kids or the parents to take have have to have responsibility placed on them shows what happens when we're trying to promote or defend ideological conclusions rather than seeking what's good and true. So what we got was a progressive trope, right, which is basically don't ever blame the kids or people who may be in tough positions. It has to be the system's fault. Um, and in this case, I think that gets us nowhere. I don't think it helps the people that you think you're defending when you say that, nor do I think it um, helps the people who are victims of, of what happened. No, we have to be willing to tell the truth. No one is responsible for, for this other than these kids and their parents. That's who's responsible. And I agree with what uh, Dr. Charlie Date said, which is the community as a whole has to take responsibility for this. Um, obviously, the police have to get involved once it happens. But from a deeper preventative standpoint, from a deeper community standpoint, you don't want that to happen. There are many ways that we can prevent this from happening if, if we're on our jobs, because once the police get involved, it's not going to be pretty, especially when this is a matter of life or death. And so we're kind of treating this like, yeah, it was cute. You know, they did what they did. Well, let's not blame that. No, people, two people got shot, as I understand it. People were assaulted. Property was destroyed and stolen, which is, is lesser than the first two that I said. But it still it still matters when people are breaking into, uh, you know, public parks and private buildings and all that stuff. That's not OK. This is real. In a way, Chicago got lucky that it wasn't worse, that people didn't get, you know, there weren't more, more shots fired and people killed. You have to step up as a leader and say, no, there's time for a whole bunch of nuance about this and that. And there's time to say, this is unacceptable. If it happens again, this, 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 and this will happen and you will be prosecuted to the furthest extent of the law. We will not stand up for this. If an executive, especially a local, local executive, cannot stand up and unequivocally unequivocally say this will not be tolerated you're going to run into trouble because the truth about lawlessness is your point that you made it's only a certain groups that are are prone to this and many times it's certain groups of young people it's not a certain race or anything it's certain groups of young people and idle men can in many cases be prone to this type of lawlessness and if it is not shut down it does not make them stop. If it's not shut down and very clear boundaries are drawn, then it grows and it continues. 
if we truly care about the community, then we call out the people who are tearing up the community in and in the same breath, provide opportunities for other people and other kids. And even those kids, I mean, people make mistakes. It's not about making sure their whole lives are ruined. But it is to say, if you do this again, you run the risk of that being the case. And we're not going to stand here and put up with it. That's just the way that, that things have to go. Another thing that I said, you know, to say, well, it's not about demonizing anybody, right? It's not about demonizing a whole community. It's about holding people responsible for what they did. And if you're not willing to do that, it's only going to grow. It's only going to get worse. Because the truth of the matter is when we go with this narrative that it's because they're, you know, it's because, first of all, we don't even know that all these kids were disadvantaged. We don't even know that all these kids were impoverished. So for that to be the assumption from anyone is interesting. We don't know that these kids were desperate. We don't know if there's other opportunities to do other things that they would want to do those things. There are some times that you have chances to do something constructive and you'd rather do something destructive. That's just the way. So don't, we can't assume that's the case. And then I'll tell you this and I'll pass it back to you. I would almost be less worried if this were seemed to me to be out of desperation. If this seemed to me to be the cry of the marginalized. But when I was watching the video, it didn't look like that. In many cases, it looked like it was for sport. I saw kids dancing on cars, laughing about what was happening. I didn't see the desperation of a group that had just had enough. And I think we make a lot of assumptions about the class and all this other stuff, the situation that these kids are in. Don't put this on impoverished kids if you don't know that to be the case. First of all, not every black kid is impoverished. So you don't know if that was the group that did it or not. But what we know was there's a certain element in all communities that if they're that if they're not given very clear boundaries and understand the consequence of what they're doing, this is what's going to happen. And we got to learn from that. And and it's just a big question and not even just on the mayor elect. Can progressives govern in these situations, in these type of cities? I think the mayor that I work for, Kasim Reed, was somewhat progressive. But when it came down to say, hey, this has to stop and I'm not playing with you. It wasn't nothing else to be said about that. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah. And and those things, those two things do have to uh, coexist because I, I think that the um, I, I think one of the reasons that Brandon Johnson was elected mayor of this city is because you can't just hold up as an alternative strategy. Well, we're going to send a whole lot of police uh, after teenagers because police ultimately uh, exist as a part of this uh, tremendously uh, meaningful and honorable group of persons we call first responders. Uh, but they are always responding. Policing is not a pre- preventative strategy. Uh, so uh, you have to take a, a more nuanced approach and go toward these um, root causes. But I think we have to do better uh, at identifying those root causes, because as, as you were saying, one, we don't know that all these kids were disadvantaged or impoverished. And to the extent that any of them were, we don't want to continue to reinforce this uh, argument that I think, Justin, uh, ultimately it, it goes around the circle and gets back. It starts off trying to be progressive, but it gets back to racism because we're essentially making the argument that being under-resourced and being in poverty equates to being hopeless. 
Uh, and that's just not my experience. Like I said, I grew up in this city. I grew up poor. I grew up with drugs in my household, sin, violence, cousins and gangs. Uh, and that is, that's not my experience. And more importantly, it's not our inheritance as black people, right? Like we have uh, as a legacy, uh, this, this thing in, in, in our, uh, uh, in our in our culture, where where folks were able to take the most abject oppression and poverty and convert it into motivation to be dignified, to achieve greatness, pursue success, build families, build communities, build legacy, right? And so, uh, I I think that we have to get back toward that. And um, I'm I'm talking about this not not just here on the podcast, but in a, in a lot of places because uh, it may seem like I'm criticizing uh, Brandon Johnson a lot and I, at some level I am but it, it is it is it is friendly fight Brandon Johnson is is a, a man that I know a man that I uh, respect tremendously I, I might even be able to say that I admire him um, and I'm still hopeful for his administration because Brandon has a skill that we have not had on the fifth floor in my lifetime which is the ability to step to a microphone and make people feel something, uh, make people believe something uh, and engender some hope. Um, but I would, I would just suggest that the program that we try to replicate be the program that actually worked for me, that worked for Brandon, that's working for our children right now. And that program is a solid family, um, a, a well-knit community going to church on Sundays, um, you know, and, and the things that government can do to reinforce that. I remember Justin uh, growing up and it would come on television at night. You know, it's it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? You know, let's start sending that out on a text message. You know, um, you know, we, we have some emergency thing because I always get it when there's an amber alert or a storm coming. So we know how to get that, get a message to everybody's phone. Send it at 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Um, kids break curfew. Let's not just say, you know, let's not demonize the children, but but let's get as many of them on a line out there on that street and issue a summons for every one of those children and their parents to appear uh, so that we can begin to sort it through. Is this a, a family that's experiencing, you know, some kind of debilitating uh, poverty and they need to be connected to resources? Or is this a family uh, that, you know, that has resources and, and connection to support and needs some other kind of uh, intervention, parenting classes, all, all types of like, we, we have to be serious and get on top of this. We can't just offer um, this kind of narrative because it's not going to cause a solution. And I said, it's going to die under this kind of pressure. And what we have to realize, and this is for any group, any culture, that if you don't check it early and unequivocally, and that's what we didn't receive. I think that's what we're saying about the response. It wasn't unequivocal in that. No, you are responsible and you better stop. When you don't do that, it seeps into the culture. Right. It becomes more than just this one thing that they did. It seeps into how they view respect authority. The way that they were treating the police officers out there is. Un Come on, man. These are your brothers and sisters, too, that are putting their lives on the line. And basically they were mocking them because they knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. And as I understand it, even within what was going on with the Chicago police, there was a problem with who's in charge and what are we going to do and what can we do? So they had to just sit there and take it. 
and how you treat. I have some very serious problems with around the nation, how police have treated and are treating my people. But guess what? When I'm with my sons and we see a police officer, go tell him thank you for the work that you do. Not because I know that that's even a good officer, but because if it's going to start with me in as much as it's up to me, we're going to be peaceful. And I'm going to let you know, I appreciate the job that you're supposed to be doing to have respect for you. Hopefully that you'll treat my people with this the same way and that you are part of my people. We have to, we have to do this. And so I appreciate the way that you handle uh, the mayor elect. Uh, as people know, um, we want every leader in this country and around to be successful. We want that success. And at the same time, you know that on this podcast, I'll reiterate, we believe in impartiality. We're not going to be partial. So no politician, no party, nobody is above a fair and constructive critique. Y'all call us out when we give a critique that's not fair and constructive. What I heard was just fair and constructive, a brother to brother advice to say, hey, before you get started, because this really ain't completely on him. He's not even there. He's the mayor elect, right? Um, but it's the response to say, ah, that may not be the way you want to handle this. I, I know in other positions and when we're commentating, we can kind of give the progressive narrative and trope. This is a moment to say, hold up now. I love this city. I love y'all, too. I want to protect you. I can't protect you when you act like that. You become the problem and not the police officer, whoever else you think is the problem. When you become the problem, I handle you like you're the problem. Don't don't walk into that space because I'm not going to have other citizens in that situation unequivocally. Because guess what? The, the kids who did that, let's hope that it doesn't happen again. They're not the only people in the city that deserve to be protected. And so for the other people that I'm here to protect, you bet not ever do that again. And if you do, it's going to be some serious consequences for you and your parents if you're underage. That's what a, that's what an executive, that's what a leader in a household, in a community, in a city has to do. Are we willing to do that? I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think you just said it perfectly, Justin. And, and, and my thing with Brandon Johnson is imagine that message coming from somebody where the young folks, the people in, in black communities and in brown communities, poor folks, don't have to question whether this guy loves you, whether he's got your best interest in heart. You know he does. But that still doesn't mean I'm going to tolerate that kind of foolishness. That's the way we got to be. That's right. Well, that is a good conversation, man. I can't wait to hear what y'all are going to tell us about this segment on Patreon and what your thoughts were. And maybe we'll even talk about it on uh, one of our Patreon premium episodes. But whew, good conversation. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the end campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp, who you might recall, refused to find, quote unquote, extra votes for President Trump in uh, this state in 2020, uh, and then in turn became uh, the target of Trump's ire, had some words to say, some tough words to say in regard to the 2024 presidential race at the Republican National Committee meeting, which was held in Nashville, uh, I believe it was last week. And he said this, he said that not a single swing voter in a single swing state will vote for our nominee if they choose to talk about the 2020 election being stolen to voters trying to pay their rent, trying to make their car payment, trying to put their kids through college. 2020 is ancient history. Voters want to know the GOP's vision for the future and couldn't care less about anyone's sour grapes. Whose sour grapes is he talking about? This clearly seems to be uh, about Trump and the narrative that he was running with in the last election cycle that, in my opinion, uh, cost the Republicans quite seriously. Now, if you recall, and this goes along with the larger story, Trump is one of the few, I mean, I'm sorry, Kemp, Governor Kemp is one of the few Republican leaders who has been willing to criticize Trump publicly and who actually beat the brakes off of Trump's candidate in the last election. So Trump, because he didn't like Kemp, he ran somebody against Kemp in the primary, the GOP primary here in Georgia. And uh, Kemp beat dude like he stole some. It was actually very embarrassing. I don't know why Purdue ran. Uh, I know that hurt Trump. And you know how Trump does. He ends up blaming it on the the candidate or whatever, even when he put him up to it, you know, he guy of, of great integrity. That's usually how he handles it. Now, to be clear, Trump, you know, Kemp punched back and all that. But Kemp wasn't necessarily looking for this fight initially, you know, in 2020. He had gone along with Trump for a long time. So we're not going to revise history. Uh, he had gone along with Trump when he was in office for a long time, just like everybody else. But once he was backed into a corner, Trump, I think, threw him under the bus for opening Georgia up then threw him under the bus for not finding or somehow creating votes uh, so that he could win the election. And we know that at least when it came to uh, Raffensburger, it was recorded. So we know this to be uh, the truth. But when he was pushed into a corner, uh, Kemp did fight back. Uh, he fought back against Trump and he won. And he did show integrity by saying, bro, I'm not about to change the results of the election or push anybody to do anything for you at this moment. Uh, and I think Kemp is right. If Trump or whoever else goes into this election, 2024, talking about what was stolen, talking about this sour grapes, it's a wrap. And it might be a wrap anyway. But I think the 22 
2022 midterms shows us proof of that. Uh, Trump losing Georgia shows us proof of that. When you talk about swing states, when you talk about swing voters, they're not going for that stuff and he cannot win without them. Okay, it's questionable if he can win with them, with some of them. You know what I mean? Can he get them even if he wasn't talking about that? Maybe is a better way to put it. So you have this situation where, look, a lot of Republicans, a lot of swing voters in Georgia have already rejected, rejected Trump. Yet he is by far the favorite in the polls for 2024. No other Republican is even close. Uh, DeSantis was hanging with him or looked like he could be in striking distance for a little bit. And he hasn't announced yet. Uh, but then when those shaky charges against Trump came out in New York, it seemed to give him an even, even bigger lead. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I will say this. If the Dems are forced to run somebody other than Biden, Trump might have a better chance. And I think. Even the two people on this uh, uh, podcast, or maybe just myself, because I don't know what your predictions were. I've already, you know, in the first election, 2020, 2016, underestimated Trump. So I don't want to go in completely underestimating him. But I think he got taken out. Uh, and then, you know, the next midterms really suffered. So I, I think Kip is right here. Uh, what are your thoughts on on just this whole uh, subject? Yeah, so I'll... Uh... I would say, you know, not to uh, toot my own horn, but from Trump's first press conference by the escalator, uh, I remember I was at a book signing event when when he on on that that evening, and I was like, "This dude's gonna beat everybody." <laughs> okay, okay. I didn't. I, hey, he fooled me. I, I was fooled, and everybody's like, "Nah, nope." I was like, "Nope." This, you know, I, I, elections are so much about name recognition and money. And, uh, and, and then it's just, it's, it's just that sport. And I was like, oh man, this dude is getting ready to clear this Republican field. And if the Democrats nominate Hillary Clinton, forget about it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think if Donald Trump goes into 2024 talking about 2020, I think Kim's absolutely right. Um, I will say though, if if we look at Trump's campaign so far, he hasn't really centered 2020, you know, and if you get a Trump, a reinvigorated, more 2016 style Trump going into a general election, certainly against somebody other than Joe Biden, uh, but even against Joe Biden, I mean, the, the last election, these, it, it was in the middle of COVID. And so it was a... a it, it was it was the playoffs in the bubble. I mean, it was it was not the real thing. I mean, and and when when you have a Joe Biden that's got to get on planes every day and crisscross the country and have rallies and talk to folks, I mean, I'm not saying that that Trump can easily beat Joe Biden, but you know, we don't know over the next year what kind of things going to happen. But we know uh, what we do economy, know. What we do know is this. Biden ain't crossing the country doing a whole bunch of nothing. Yeah. Your best option is to just do what they did last time. If they had to hide him last time and kind of not have him go out there, that's what they're going to do again. I mean, Trump yeah. obviously has more energy. Biden is prone to he's always been prone to making mistakes. But really now it kind of makes him look like he's unfit, like he's doesn't have the capacity. So I expect that they will hide him. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult, though, 
it's going to be a much different contrast uh, when it's not COVID. Because in the last election, we were all doing everything on Zoom. You know, you're rarely seeing people who you don't live with. Um, so it's just going to be a very different uh, cycle. Um, and wh- while I don't, I don't have that same feeling like, oh, this guy's going to like run through everybody. But I, I do feel that um, while I agree with Kemp for sure, like I, I think that if, if if you make a 2024 election about the 2020 election being stolen, um, you know, I, I don't think you can. That's not going to vote. Yeah. And, and then why vote for some other people? Right. Like if it, right. they're just going to steal it, why even? So Trump may have already made that, uh, you know, uh, and that, you know, he had may have come to that conclusion already himself. Yeah, what, what they should be like if I if I were in Trump's uh, camp or or in Republican, uh, you know, sort of decision making circles, I would try to remind people that the only reason Donald Trump lost the twenty twenty election, uh, it 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 was not about the election being stolen. It was it was about the party not embracing a shift that was taking place in voting habits. Right, so you you campaigned against vote by mail instead of organizing your people to actually vote by mail, uh, and you failed to do something. E- even with that failure to mobilize, I think if, if Trump sends out one more round of checks, yeah, uh, kind of, then kind of he's probably going to get uh, reelected. And so it's it's material politics um, and uh, and 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 campaign sort of like on the ground strategy that cost uh, Trump the, the 2020 election, which is why I don't know. To, to me, it was, it, was, it was foolish to go after the whole, like the election was stolen thing, uh, you know, immediately. Like if I, if I had his ear, he should immediately went to, I'll, I'll be back, right? Like we, we lost this narrowly because the, the ground shifted up under our feet. Uh, but this guy's going to wreck the country and I'll be back in four years. Um, and he never left the, you know, the the limelight, even with being taken off of social media and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so Kemp is right. Don't talk about 2020. That I don't think you get swing voters like that. But I don't think that the Democratic Party should rest easy in that assessment because there's there's nothing indicating to me right now that that is, that's even going to be Trump's um uh, sort of approach to the campaign. And we have to remember that any, even in the 2022 uh, 20, uh, midterms, there was the uh, election fraud weight around the shoulders of, of the Republican candidates. But a lot of the candidates uh, that Trump put forward were also just really bad candidates. Um, and so never underestimate how bad it can get if you put a really bad candidate forward, which is what the, to me, that's what Democrats got to be thinking about. Well, it seemed like they they were very bad candidates, but it seemed like only the bad candidates were willing to do what he wanted them to do. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. He kind of created, you know, he had a, (laughs) a, a, a very uh, small pool of applicants that were really (laughs) willing to do that with any type of credibility. And so I think that is part of it. We'll we'll see. I mean, again, you can't, you can't underestimate Trump because he does have a talent that most people don't have, and he he finds issues that kind of brings people a certain group to him. You also have a Biden that is in this is in tough shape, and a Democratic Party that's bench isn't just doesn't seem to be that great. You know, you do have Gavin Newsom is interesting to me, who's been in like Florida, 
trolling DeSantis. And it's like, bruh, you got too much stuff going on in California for me to respect anything you got to say about anybody else's state. Who is telling you to do this? Now, he's announced that if that's just something else that uh, we're about to talk about in a minute. But Feinstein, he's announced that he, you know, he'll make a a black woman that can't, you know, the candidate if he has to replace her and all that stuff. Um, but, bro, I think you should be focused on what you're supposed to be do at home. And a lot of the legislation that he's even passing is the legislation that he's passing to run for president. But it's like, dude, focus on what's going on in your state, bro. It's, you know, it is what it is, but that's just another element of what's going on in what I think is going to be a very interesting race, uh, you know, come. I mean, it's coming very soon. Uh, and so the Ant campaign, hopefully we can continue to educate you in this space. We'll be joining with a lot of the elders that came to the event to put on some what I think will be uh, uh, helpful events and things of that nature. So stay tuned for that. But it's going to be an interesting uh, season that we got coming up. So we're going to keep you informed. Uh, we're going to keep, again, the content coming, man. Y'all just keep your ears open and get your feet ready to be engaged. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Chris Butler. Speaker Dianne Feinstein is 89 years old. Uh, She has been completely absent from the Senate since February because of an illness. And since that time, obviously, she has not taken a single vote, uh, meaning that she's missed, I think, about 60 votes. Even when she was physically there, though, Chris, uh, people are reporting that she wasn't quite there mentally, that she's maybe incapable of doing her job. Um, During her last interview, uh, it seemed that she didn't even know that her team had issued a statement saying that she wouldn't run for another term. Uh, And so that was kind of embarrassing. Because she's missed so much time and because I think of the thought that she's been kind of incapacitated just due to her age, California Congressman Ro Khanna uh, respectfully, I think he was respectful, called for her to retire. He said that he respected what she had done. She had accomplished a lot, but that she needed it was time for her to retire. Another congressman called the situation a dereliction of duty. Now, Feinstein's office, Chris, uh, said that she wasn't going to resign, uh, but they did urge Senate Majority Leader Schumer, Schumer to replace her on the Judiciary Committee. 
Uh, now, it's one thing that she's missing votes just in general, but it's another thing that she's holding up judicial candidates. And we know that the Trump administration administration was very efficient and effective when it came to judicial appointment of conservative judges. Now, Democrats are saying, hey, during the Biden administration, we need to catch up with progressive judges. And now you have somebody on that committee, a Democrat who's on that committee that's not there, which allows Republicans to stop uh, them from appointing people. The interesting part, Chris, is that Feinstein's people are saying, "Okay, go ahead and just replace her with another Democrat. But it's not that easy. Right. In order to replace her, Schumer would need a unanimous vote or at least to get to that 60 uh, person threshold to get her replaced. And it doesn't seem to me, maybe you know something that I don't know, Chris, it doesn't seem to me that Republicans have any motivation to help Schumer get Feinstein replaced. Feinstein replaced. Number one, they don't want them to put any more judges on the bench. Number two, why would they, they see the infighting, why would they stop the infighting? Now, for me, they should be acting in both sides should be acting with intellectual honesty and in the best interest of the country. And generally you let people put on, you let the leader put on committees who they should, should have on the committees. So I'm certainly not saying the Republicans are right, but based on the context of what's been happening lately, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And I don't know about you, Chris, but it, it, it does seem kind of selfish at this point to stay in a position that you know you don't you just don't seem to be able to serve now i will say this she has some people coming to her her defense nancy pelosi's office called kana and others sexist for their comments so they're saying they're sexist for saying hey respectfully it's time to retire sexism is real i think we both agree with that ageism is real and I, you know i think you know even seeing my parents at time or two like engage not engage but receive kind of ageism it's it's not it's a serious thing so i don't i don't think this really is should ever be about somebody's age it really should be about whether they can do the job or not but when we come out and call somebody sexist for making a reasonable um demand right for saying hey this is time that's reasonable based on what we've seen it's not just based on the age it's based off what we've seen when you call them sexist and that and i get on people who do this with racism too you hurt the actual real issue so i think for nancy i think nancy's pelosi's office was wrong for calling somebody sexist when they're making even if you disagree with them it's reasonable right can she do the job or not it's not necessarily about her age if she can't do the job whether she's her age or Fetterman's age, with people saying, can he do the job? Then maybe she should step down. But here's the overriding thing. The voters knew her age. The voters knew her condition. And they voted her back in. So she does have that argument on her side as well. If they wanted somebody younger or somebody who was operating differently, they could have you know, handled that. But go ahead, Chris. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I... I I think your uh, last comment there sort of gets to what comes mostly to my mind when I look at this whole fiasco, um, which is we have to figure something better in how we're electing uh, members of Congress. Um, there's, I mean, there's very little more predictable in the world than who's going to win congressional and Senate 
elections. I mean, it's it's over ninety percent incumbent reelection rate, um, and so the and and the argument, at least in, in my lifetime, it can't be that the argument that folks are making is look at the job we're doing, right? Because Congress hasn't been performing that well for a long time, but but members of Congress get reelected over and over again. And I think throughout our government, um, elections have become something something strange, like where it's like people have this this right, um, you know, to to be there, and it's about you know if they're connected to the right person. Because even when it's not an incumbent, you know, it's you know, well, this person's. Uh, chief of staff or the one who, you know, they worked in the alderman's office for 30 years until that alderman got really old. And now they're just a little bit old, but now they're going to get the seat. Like, so it's, it's something other than what I think you conceive of when you think about a democratic form of government where uh, voters look at individuals and make a choice based on who's got the best set of ideas. And you can't lay all of that at the feet of the elected officials themselves. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with how money is involved in our politics. Uh, but we also have to do some 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 introspection uh, and, and into how we ever get uh, to to this place. And so we talked about in the last block about Brian Kemp and, and sort of like saying some truth about Donald Trump. Um, I think the same sort of credit goes to Congressman Rokana uh, for saying some truth about Diane Feinstein. Um, you know, if you can't do the job, you should, you should give up that job. Uh, no, the Republicans are not going to help. Uh, and uh, even though I'm totally opposed to the kind of bifurcated, hostile, uh, uh, polar ideological warfare that we have going in government, um, I respect the idea that Republicans and conservatives don't believe that it is in the best interest of the country uh, to put a lot of liberal judges on the federal bench. And so I wouldn't expect that they would help Democrats be able to do that. Now, you won elections fair and square, you should be able to do it. But if you can't figure out how to get your stuff in order enough to do the thing that you think is going to help the country, I'm not going to help you do it if I don't think that it is in the best interest of the country. Um, and so th this is something that Democrats do have to figure out uh, inside of their party. And it makes no sense to me that the the, the sort of right, some sense of, of, of privilege uh, to this seat in the United States Senate is being allowed to overshadow the fact that the most populous state in the uh, in the country only has one senator effectively uh, right now, and the Democratic Party is unable to move forward uh, their judicial uh, nominations. Yeah, I mean, and going along with you, with what you said earlier is I've literally seen people run from their deathbed get elected, pass away so that there could be a special election and then it's passed to somebody that, you know, was handpicked. If we care about democracy, it shouldn't happen that way. Uh, there's two there's two two places that, you know, I think we can look to say we can do better. As an elected official and somebody, if you cannot do your job, you owe it to the people to step down. So you owe it to the American people. So not just your constituents you're in your district. You owe it to the people to say, man, I'm not, I'm not able to do what I need to do. And the voters, as, as you just said, the voters 
ultimately it's, it's on you. People don't like to step down. Like it's hard. And being somebody who's not of that age, I want to be charitable to say it's easy for young people. I mean, just step down. Your time's up. I mean, there's some people think when you turn 40, <laughs> you're yep. supposed to step down and not do anything else. So I, I do want to be charitable that if you if you're of, of sound mind and the people put you in there, you can do the job. Hey, I'm not one of those people who say all boomers have to get out of every single position. Hey, that's I don't I can't make that decision because who knows where I'll be at that moment either. You know, myself, it's not an easy decision to make. Just say, hey, you've been doing so your whole life. Just do just go and do nothing now or do something else that, you know, that person does make that decision. But I think we all have to be responsible and say, hey, you know, I'm not I'm not in the position to continue to do this or at least I need to make sure successors are coming or whatever. So, you know, we're, we're all in this together. We all play a part in the conversation. I do think, and I didn't, I would like to hear what you think about Ro kind of being called sexist for that. I mean, I'm just saying like, guys, we don't just, just because you, when you disagree with somebody and you know, you can hit them a place that hurts, that don't mean you have to do it. Like, don't just you, you, if you care about that issue, why use it in a way that is not justified, right? Why use it in a way that you know is just exploiting the issue for for immediate, you know, for that kind of immediate uh, impact? I don't know, man. I, I just don't like that. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's disgusting. I think it is uh, intellectually dishonest, um, and yeah, we we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. Like we 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 have to return some of our public conversation uh, to to taking place on some foundation of of basic intellectual honesty. Um, like just be curious, think about it for three more minutes. I'll bet you could come up with another good criticism, uh, so that you can come to the defense of your, you know, uh, person who you're trying to defend and, and make some argument for why a person who can't show up to the United States Senate should continue to be a United States Senator. That doesn't make any sense, but I'll bet you if you thought about it long enough, you would come up with some other dumb argument than actually taking a, a, an issue that that is not yet settled, that really needs work and advocacy and and cheapening that issue. Um, like, just don't do that. Take two more minutes. There's plenty of dumb arguments to be made. <laughs> if you're going to make a dumb argument, at least make sure it's not completely intellectually dishonest. I think I think is that I think that's the point of, the, of this it. segment. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, as always, we appreciate y'all. I hope you you all appreciate these conversations we have. We are committed to being as honest and impartial as we can be. And, and that 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 goes for everybody. Uh, I hope if if I do something at some point, Chris has to say, hey, man, I got to be real with you. That ain't what you were supposed to do. And so we're committed. And because we think that's the only way you change the news and the commentary that we're getting. If me and Chris sit here and choose a side that we're going to go hard on and then just kind of touch the other side or don't ignore that, then we're not helping you. We're not being who we said we're supposed to be. I know that our audience appreciates that. Uh, as our audience grows, I hope that appreciation grows because we're going to continue to do it. I don't know that we're here for any other reason. Ain't nothing really all that special about us. <laughs> so maybe the fact that we're trying to approach it differently uh, not perfectly. We get things wrong, but maybe the fact that we're trying to approach it with some honesty, with impartiality, uh, adds something to the discourse. I think, you know, hopefully that's what we have to contribute. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. So as always, folks, you know how it is. And camp, there is 
Uh, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. I'll let you. Dear Lord.